Marini's Media. Totally Football Show, today. You've got no French. Some of the reactions there to the return of football, but here on Totally, we get with the Bundesliga fever and ask, how did you feel about the Geisterspiel? Was it Thundersliga or Eerie Divisi? Also, we've got another of our dives back into Premier League history. We're up to 1997-98, and there's drama in the quiz as Alvaro tries for his Romeo Tarda. It's all in the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. That Tiffany and the sound of coaches shouting. In the pod today, listener, welcome along. We've got Daniel Story here with us. Hello, Daniel. Hi, James. Also, Matt Davis-Adams. Hello. And welcoming back, Michael Cox. Hi, James. Lovely to see you, Michael. We've all just watched the Bayern game, haven't we? The return of Bundesliga this weekend. Uh, Slightly unusual circumstances, although, of course, the Bayern game did have one spectator, Manuel Neuer. (laughs) What what are we thinking in general about, uh, you know, having football back? Yeah, I mean, it's it's not perfect. It's not as we would want it to be. But I think in the circumstances, it was good to have some current football to discuss. Um, To be honest, I mean, three of the last four games I watched before this coronavirus break were played behind closed doors. So... I kind of almost got slightly accustomed to that. So it feels like uh, in that sense, we're picking up where we left off. Obviously, there's some different things with, you know, more subs and and face masks on the way into the stadiums. And certainly the goal celebrations in the uh, Dortmund game look look particularly odd. But uh, Mm. yeah, I was relieved to have some football back. That elbow greeting is a bit weird. It's a bit kind of, I don't know, like alien greeting from a (laughs) sci-fi drama in the 70s or something. What, What did you make of it, Daniel? Yeah, exactly the same. Uh, I mean, I think the first five minutes were were, were odd. They lived, they felt like a pre-season friendly game, especially with the with the buying game, with kind of the lengthening shadows and the sun. It all felt a bit balmy early August evening. But in terms of how weird I expected it to feel with this kind of preconception of, oh my goodness, we're playing football, it felt reasonably normal. I, th- I actually thought the standard and the intensity of the play was was far better and far higher than I thought it would be. I thought there'd be a real slowness to the game, other than maybe the last half an hour of the buying game where they were just, you know, Union were just sitting back. I thought it was a pleasing pace to the game, a pleasing intensity. Yeah, that was a big surprise for me too. Um, I mean, the Dortmund and Bayern games kind of went exactly how you would have expected them to go, which was sort of reassuring. The, the thing that I struggled with, I think this is because it's the Bundesliga and I don't have a vested interest in it, was, was that's where I, I missed the crowd to, to provide the, the necessary jeopardy and, and intensity about a game which you you know, you know might get in a Premier League game behind closed doors because, well, I might because that's a league that I watch every week, but it, but it was it was difficult to feel that without having the crowd to, to provide it for you. All right, a couple of listeners writing in about this, actually. Louis F suggesting that BT Sport overlay the live matches with some crowd noises. Andrew Lang uh, also asking if that would be possible and making the, the observation that 
It's a bit like canned laughter, which nobody thinks they like. But have you ever tried watching Friends without it, says Andrew Lang? And he provides a link to uh, a scene from Friends without canned laughter on it. And as he points out, it is really, really unnerving. Yeah, I, I personally quite like the idea of, of crowd noise. I probably favour having the broadcasters do it rather than it being piped through the stadium, I think, just because, well, I know that some ultras in Germany have expressed a, a kind of aversion to having that kind of fake crowd noise, probably because they think it could be the first step towards fans being kind of priced out and them not mattering, which I kind of understand, although I think is a bit of a straw man argument. But yeah, maybe the broadcasters doing it is a kind of good halfway house solution to that. That's something actually that I would much prefer on um, games played on the continent rather than England because there's a fascination early on for me to, to listen to what the players are saying to each other, how they talk to the referee, what the coaches say from the sidelines, but my German's not good enough to be able to translate that, which is why I needed that kind of almost muzak of a crowd noise um, in the games this weekend. I think that's a really good point, Matt. We might have a different reaction too this weekend's games if we spoke German because it's probably really interesting hearing the players talking to each other or the, the managers yelling uh, we'll, we'll get Raphael Honigstein on the line of course very very shortly he's just wrapping up the show on BT Sport right now but in the meantime quick check on the results in what was round 26 of the German season eight more to go after this Bayern uh, maintaining their social distancing at the top four points clear of Borussia Dortmund with the 2-0 win over Union Berlin. Gladbach and Dortmund also won. Dortmund hammering Schalke in the Ruhr derby while Leipzig only managed to draw with Freiburg. Big game, of course, was the Riviera derby. And who else to get us underway with our first goal after two months but Erling Haaland. Haaland macht es tatsächlich und wir haben es ein paar Sekunden vorher gehört. Borussia Dortmund geht in der 29. Minute. Again, I mentioned it in the intro, but it feels like his his celebration there and the fact that none of his teammates were, were coming within two metres of him feels like it might be quite a defining image, I think, for the, for the next few years because this could be the new normal uh, to use a bit of a cliche, for the next few months. And that really was the first taste of it. Although you might have seen at the end how he and his Borussia Dortmund teammates all went to where the yellow wall should be and, and, and did their usual celebration to an empty stand. And there was a, a memorable interview that he conceded to the host broadcaster afterwards today, explaining course, that. Uh, why did you do that? Uh, why not? Is it a kind of message you want to send out? Yes. Would you tell us a message? To my fans, to they're our fans. They're everything for you and for Borussia Dortmund. It is. Thanks a lot. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, explaining used very much wrongly, uh, that term, because <laughs> his interview is, I mean, I assume it's a deliberate thing, but um, I saw someone, I can't remember who it was, tweeting and saying, the key with him is that if you ask him a direct question, he will just give you a one-word answer. So you have to give him a question of, can you talk me through that goal or not a... So were you happy to get underway after two months? Because, yeah, he he just gives one-word answers, which, to be honest, feels a bit dickish for me. I mean, mm. I don't know. He knows he knows the game. He knows what's going on there, but fine. There's a touch of the Ibrahimovic's about him, I think, in terms of physically, he's a, he's a big, tall chap, but also the way that he conducts himself in those post-match interviews. I always think of Ibrahimovic whenever I see him do that kind of thing. And, and Ibrahimovic can be a bit of a dick as well, so the comparison... Yeah, I was going to say... I was going to say, that isn't necessarily a compliment, is it? <laughs> <laughs> Andre Bias, is Haaland reminiscent, maybe would be your answer, of any historically great striker in terms of playing style and effectiveness, or is he an entirely new phenomenon? Does he remind you of anyone, Michael? 
No, I thought that's a really good question, and I spent a, a while trying to think of someone, and I couldn't really. He's just, um, I mean, the thing about him that I haven't really thought about a, a young striker for a long time is just how physically intimidating he is and how powerful his shooting is. I mean, these days when a young player comes through at that age, we, we tend to see, you know, maybe their pace, maybe their trickery and their dribbling, but he just seems so efficient. He just seems really mature that, you know, from the first time I watched him, he didn't feel like a teenager. He felt like someone who'd been, you know, building himself up physically and, and in terms of working on his game for years. So no, I, I was struggling really to see a comparison with that, certainly in terms of the physical strength for someone so young. The, the the penalty box movement is remarkable for for a player so young. I mean, that's the kind of thing that if you talk to you know you hear interviews with strikers and Gary Lineker is the obvious example. He says that's the sort of thing that comes with part of it's natural, but part of it comes with time. Like knowing when the ball is going to be delivered, knowing which way the defender is going to go, or when the defender is going to turn his head so you can kind of slip in behind him. But he seems to know all that so instinctively that, like Michael says, it almost makes him this sort of conglomerate striker of various excellent attributes from various different strikers. I know the joke is that he's this kind of sort of Frankenstein figure and he's huge and imposing with his jawline, but it kind of feels like he's that as a striker as well. There's, it's like someone selected the best bits of the best strikers of the last 20 years. All right, well, his goal was the first one, but there were three more. A couple from Guerrero. The, the second of those was absolutely outstanding, you know, with the, the flick with the outside of his left boot. Also, Eden's brother, Torgan Hazard, getting on the score sheet. How good, by the way, was Julian Brandt or Julian Brandt in this game? Yeah, I thought he had a really good game. I mean, um, I guess from a, a British perspective, it was a surprise not to see Jaden Sancho playing and maybe didn't look particularly in shape when he did come on for 10 minutes. But yeah, I mean, Brandt's movement, it, he just seems to me like a almost a typical modern German player, just really intelligent with his you know, spatial awareness, very good technically. There was one... Uh, I don't even know what to call it, kind of a volleyed backheeled pass he played out to the right flank, having got the ball in quite an awkward situation. Yeah, I thought he was the star of the show. Um, and, you know, that's very much in keeping with whenever I've seen Dortmund this season. He's, he's looked really good. Probably worth mentioning that Schalke went into this game with Marcus Schubert in goal rather than uh, Alessandro Noble, who's been benched because he's decided to take a, a move to, to Bayern Munich. And I think that might have had a had a hand in, in the scoreline, uh, Schubert, you know, not really covering himself in glory. Other results of interest? Well, uh, Mönchengladbach went third uh, with a 3-1 win over Eintracht Frankfurt. A goal after 37 seconds in this one from Alisson Player. And then uh, Marcus Turam uh, with uh, the second goal. Uh, all very nice. Uh, Leipzig, as I mentioned, slipping up at home uh, to Freiburg, 1-1. Hertha Berlin with one of the shocks of the weekend. A club that's on its fourth manager of the season now. A club that has had to try and restore some sanity over the lockdown by adding Jens Lehmann to their boardroom. But they faced Hoffenheim and beat them 3-0 in Hoffenheim. Well, in Sinsheim. And did you see the Matthias Cunha goal from that? The third of the goals? Yeah, it was pretty special. So he kind of picks it up, wide left, little Cruyff turn to, to get away from his defender. At this point, he's at the byline cuts inside and, and kind of fires it diagonally into the into the far top corner. Um, definitely the goal of the weekend, I think. Absolutely. Any other thoughts on the Bundesliga weekend? Any other things that you wanted to talk about before we hear from Rafa? I was just going to say that 
the big thing is really other than for our own amusement the the football being played was great the the bigger issue comes this week in the kind of post match testing program uh and to see what effect on the players i know there were a number of muscle injuries but the testing is it that's king now if they if they get through and there's barely any positive tests then we really do have a blueprint moving forward if there's a spate of positive tests then it will obviously ask serious questions about the future of the league well, I think we can hear now from Raphael Honigstein with his verdict on the weekend's events. First of all, quick verdict on Bayern's return. A laboured win against an Union side that really made it very difficult. Um, I think they didn't water the pitch in, in two months. That's certainly how it looked to me from uh, sitting where I was. And they defended really well. And Bayern weren't quite at their sharpest just yet, but it was still enough to never really be in doubt that much, I think. In general, and beyond the results, while we wait to see in terms of injuries and and, and other issues that might develop from the weekend, what has the reaction been so far to this opening weekend of the rest of the Bundesliga season? Well, I think the overwhelming feeling is one of relief, James, because it was seen as a big risk for the Bundesliga to come back. There was a lot of criticism. A lot of people, I think, would have been almost happy if things would have failed to to work smoothly. Um, of course, this is only the start of the restart, if you will, because every match day, every test is going to bring potential disruption. Uh, but I think it was really important for morale, for encouragement, if you will, for a bit of having... Uh, a bit of confidence in the system that the first match they got out of the way relatively smoothly. Uh, they still won match to come, of course, on Monday night, but so far I think it went as well as the Bundesliga could have hoped for. And one of the big worries ahead, particularly of the, the fixture on Saturday, Dortmund against Schalke, was of fans gathering and, and people using the fixtures to, as a reason to, to break the uh, social distancing rules. Did anything like that happen? No, nothing like that happened at all. I mean, I, I think there was still, um, in some areas in Germany, the police had to intervene because people were hanging out, but that wasn't necessarily connected to the football as such. And where it happened, it was really, we're talking about, you know, dozens rather than hundreds of thousands of people. So one of the biggest fears of the Bundesliga was that they would attract uh, huge groups of fans to the stadium or to the city centres, and uh, as far as I can tell, having spoken to a few uh, officials over the last few hours, none of these fears were realized. And, and I think they're very, very, very happy that the fans, after a lot of, um, I think, intense talks and, and a lot of communication from the clubs, realized that there was not a good idea to do it, if, even if they, if they even had the idea in the first place, because I think uh, some of them have been unfairly brushed with this uh, tar that they might do something stupid, whereas the real, I think, evidence for that was, was quite thin on the ground. Excellent. All right then, Rafa. Well, as you say, there's Werder Bremen against Leverkusen on Monday, and then next weekend, loads of big games, including the Berlin derby, and in 10 days' time, De Classica, Dortmund against Bayern Munich. So loads for us to discuss. We'll, we'll catch up with you again then on Thursday. Safe travels. Thank you. Ciao. Raphael Honigstein. Well, uh, no clear idea on when and if the Premier League uh, may affect a similar return. Meanwhile, you probably have seen that League Two in England has given up and declared their season over. 
Uh, clubs unanimously indicating their desire to use an unweighted points-per-game system to decide the final table. What what does that actually mean? So unweighted is exactly as it sounds. So it's just how many points per game they have at the moment and then extrapolate that to the full season. Weighted points per game is almost as simple, which is they divide their number of home points divided by the number of home games they've played and in the Football League times it by 23, in the Premier League times it by 19 to get their number of home points and obviously do that for the aways and then add them together. Right. Well, what it means, pending ratification, is that Swindon Town overtake Crew Alexander to claim the title, Plymouth Argyle staying in the third and final automatic promotion spot. Playoff teams remain there, Exeter City, Cheltenham Town, Colchester United and Northampton Town. At the bottom, Stevenage stay rooted to the foot of the table, although the clubs have requested that relegation is scrapped for 2019-20. And there's actually a very easy out there for the EFL and the National League because they can say there's no relegation from League 2, but Barrow, who were top of the National League when, when that was called off, could still get a place in the EFL next season because of Berry's expulsion earlier in the campaign. It means that there is a, a place to make 91-92 again. So that seems like um, a relatively smooth way for them to deal with that. Well, that's neat. But National League has declared the season over. League 2 has as well. League 1 currently split. As I understand it, only six clubs have said that they want to see the season complete. It does feel like this is creeping up the pyramid a little bit. It's a matter of cost. It's something that it looks like we're going to see in the WSL as well. That you know they're talking about one hundred and forty thousand uh, pounds is the cost purely for tests for clubs. And now, for somebody like Stevenage or Macclesfield, that that's not sustainable. Or indeed, a, a WSL team who aren't heavily backed um, by the football club as a whole. So that's the main barrier for League Two and League One. The, the thing with League One and the clubs that you mentioned, James, clubs like Sunderland, they have very different budgets to, to other clubs within the division. And that's where the division within the division in, in that sense seems to have seems to have come in. But in, but in League Two, there's there's no team that can afford to be spending £140,000 mm. just on testing their players. I heard an interview with, with Port Vale's uh, chairperson who was saying that this was a time that they had to vote for the game rather than for the club. Port Vale are in eighth and just outside the playoffs and I'm sure would have liked to continue and try and get into those playoffs but her point was well that's all very well as voting for ourselves but in a year's time we might all be reliant on each other and therefore we have to look at the bigger picture. The other thing that most of the League Two clubs would have to do to get playing again is to bring their players off furlough which is a massive cost for them so it's just not practical really for for League Two to start again I don't think. Indeed. Well, of course, the Premier League is a slightly different financial beast, uh, but still no definite word on when a return would come for the top division. Mid-June, still the notion. Coming up in today's show very shortly, we'll be diving back into the 97-98 Premier League season. And my word, it was an entertaining one. Before that, though, and recorded earlier on and featuring Daniel here, it's the Intertotally. On Spotify, smart speaker and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. OK, it's the quiz. It's the return leg of our first semi-final, a place in the final. Quite literally awaits for one of our pundits today. Let's meet him. Up first... He went into the Bass Brawler's backyard and came out on top. What will his own vacillations keep him from ultimate victory, leaving nothing to the imagination? Uh, it is Daniel Story. Hello, Daniel. Hi, James. Long time no speak, eh? 
Indeed. Right. Uh, ooh, you've got a three-point lead from the first leg. You've got four away answers in your pocket in mm. case of a tie, and you've got your home subject to come. Are you already getting fitted out for your snazzy cup final suit? <laughs> yeah, the white Liverpool 96, I think, yeah. Mm, that would be my choice too. All right. It's not over yet, though. Let's meet the man now who's hoping to snatch that white suit from your grasp with an incredible comeback. And his opponent. He's seen off some of the biggest names in the tournament so far, but pretty much Defacado Lacama in his home leg, rolling his R's and sharpening his elbows. He is Alvaro Romero. Alvaro, welcome back. Hello, James. Um, I, I am nervous. I am nervous. I'm hoping that Daniel is as confident as Milan when they were leading Liverpool 3-0 in Istanbul. Nice comparison. And La Vida is on a tombola. You just don't know what you're going to draw. It is Daniel's specialist subject, though, this time around. Uh, Daniel, can you just remind us what that is? Yeah, it's uh, post-war FA Cup finals. Mm. Alvaro, have you been reading up? A lot. A lot, really. I, I didn't want to come out with zero points from a subject I have no clue about. So, yeah, yeah, right. I, I spent a lot of time looking at this. Here we go, then. Asking questions on post-war FA Cup finals or anything Nick Miller feels is relevant to that. Alvaro, Europe first. And here comes question one. Which was the most recent FA Cup final to go to a replay? That must have been the... Mm, Is it Arsenal Aston Villa? It was 1993 and it was Arsenal, but it was against Sheffield Wednesday. Okay. All right, question two. Apart from Wembley, what are the only two grounds to host a post-war FA Cup final? One of them has to be Old Trafford and the other one, uh, the Millennium Stadium in Cardiff. Is correct, Alvaro. Question three. What do the 1973, 1976 and 1988 FA Cup finals have in common? They were won by, by Liverpool? No, they were all won by teams from outside the top flight. On to question four. Which player holds the record for scoring in the most FA Cup finals? Not scoring the most goals, but scoring in the most finals. Is it Ian Rush? It's Didier Drogba. He scored in four finals, okay. 2007, 2009, 2010 and 2012. Relentless. Question five then, Alvaro. Which player won the Champions League with Ajax, the UEFA Cup with Inter and the FA Cup three times with two different teams in the 2000s? What did he win with Ajax, sorry? So he won the Champions League with Ajax. Okay. At Inter, he won the UEFA Cup. And he won the FA Cup on three occasions with two different teams in the 2000s. Hmm. Nuan Kokano? Is correct. At the end of that round, Alvaro, you have scored two points, meaning you're now just one point behind Daniel. Paul is for a major upset in the general knowledge, perhaps. But let's see first what Daniel can do with his post-war FA Cup finals questions. Daniel, question one. Two current Premier League managers have captained the winning team in an FA Cup final. Which two are they? Hmm. 
Two current Premier League managers have captained the winning team in an FA Cup final. Um, difficult one to start there. I'm going to say... Wow. I have to press you for an answer, Daniel. Yeah, I thought you were going to say that. Um, I was going to say Frank Lampard, but I don't even think that's right. Um, and Are you saying Frank Lampard? Yes, I will say Frank Lampard. Then and I'm afraid not. It's yeah, uh, Steve Bruce and Mikel Arteta. Bruce with Manchester United in 94. Mikel Arteta with Arsenal in 2014. Mm-hmm. Good start. All right, then. Question two. By not winning in the big game, what did the losing finalists in 1957, 1977, 1985, 1988, 2007 and 2017 miss out on doing? Uh, the double. That's correct. Losing finalists were all league champions in those years. Question three. Who is the missing name in this list of Chelsea managers who have won the FA Cup since the war? Dave Sexton, Ruud Hullit, Gianluca Vialli, Jose Mourinho, Carlo Ancelotti, Roberto Di Matteo and Antonio Conte. Who's the missing man? So Conte would have been... No. Looking for the other Chelsea manager to win a post-war FA Cup final. Indeed. Avram Grant? It was Gus Hiddink. Ah! Hmm... You'll be kicking yourself over that one. Yes. Question four, then. Which fanzine was named after an incident in the 1987 final? Oh, so it's Coventry's and it's um, something like one off the knee or one off Mabbott's knee. It refers to Gary Mabbott's own goal. It's Gary Mabbott's knee, a Coventry fanzine named after the winning goal being scored by the Spurs captain. That's yeah. extraordinary, Daniel. Thank you. Question five, then. Who were the teams that contested that first post-war final? Uh, so that's uh, 1946. That's Derby and Charlton. Is correct. So at the end of that round, you've scored three points out of five, Daniel, giving you a four-point lead. But with your extraordinary number of away answers from the first leg, effectively, Alvaro, you need a perfect score in the general knowledge. You need a total collapse from Daniel's story. Yep, I don't depend on my own at all. <laughs> right, well, we'll see. We, we saw something similar happen in the quarterfinal when you were massively behind Pat Nevin, but still made it through. But, uh, Daniel, you've got to be looking good. And I have to say congratulations for that extraordinary fanzine answer. Yeah, that's the, uh, that's the one I'm happy with in that round. Excellent. Well, it's all about the general knowledge later on to decide the place in the final. We'll see you guys later for that. Well, Alvaro needing a 5-0 in the general knowledge, by my calculations. What did you, what did you think of that, Michael, as, a, as somebody with a very vested interest in this, as another of the semi-finalists? Yeah, it seems an uphill task in the final quarter for Alvaro, but uh, did well on a pretty tricky specialist subject, I think. Can he make that count later on? We'll find out. Next up, it's time for us to go full retro with our 97-98 season review. I'm Jose Mourinho. I know a thing or two about being special. Finding pastel de natas in a London cafe? Special. Winning the daily jackpot on Paddy Power Games? Not special. 
Understood, Jose. Yes, someone wins an average £40,000 jackpot every single day. So if you win, don't think you're special. Daily Jackpots by Paddy Power Games. Jackpots must be awarded by 11pm and vary from day to day. Jackpot is shared with other operators. Available on selected games. T's and C's at paddypower.com. 18plusbgamblerware.org. On Spotify, smart speaker and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. Yes, Premier League 97-98 is back. The season of Roy at the Rovers, Tykes going tits up, and Christian Gross with his tube ticket. While the rest of the world mourned for Princess Diane Dodi and Monica Lewinsky's dry cleaning bill, in the Premier League it was all about Arsenal's duel with Man United and a big name set for the drop. So much to discuss from this one. Michael, Matt and Daniel. Above all, it was Arsenal's first full season with the Gunners. Michael, Matt and Daniel, how much did you enjoy looking back on 97-98? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I very much enjoyed it. Uh, I think it was uh, an eventful season, particularly in terms of the title race. And uh, yeah, some particularly some good goals. I, I kind of enjoyed watching again. Darren Huckabee against Manchester United was uh, felt like a particularly uh, big moment in the season at that point. Absolutely. And when you talk about good goals... You can't say fairer than Dennis Bergkamp. Has anyone ever had a better August than Dennis Bergkamp did in this competition? He scored five goals in four games. Three of them were the top three goals in Match of the Day's Goal of the Month competition for that August, which was not surprisingly won by one of the two he scored against Leicester in that incredible game. One of his best ever, though. But here's Bergkamp still on the hat-trick. Great touch by Bergkamp! Oh, it's unbelievable! Yeah, I mean, I think... There's an argument to say that it, maybe we don't think about it, but looking back when I was researching the season, there's an argument to say that's one of the best ever individual Premier League seasons, I think. You know, Bergkamp was Arsenal's top scorers. They won the league, 16 league goals. And he wasn't always a, you know, he wasn't always a, or really ever a 20 goal a season man. But he also got the second most assists in the league and nobody better reflected the kind of new Arsene Wenger-ness of Arsenal and that kind of modern approach than how he adapted to the Premier League after a pretty tricky start. Yeah, I mean, he started the season in remarkable fashion. Those are the goals you remember of Bergkamp. There's always a touch. There's always a sh- kind of a drop of the shoulder and then there's always a curled or stabbed finish. And yeah, the Leicester ones were were amazing. Maybe as, as a player, but more as a character, not not as celebrated as, as he should have been in this season because he was quite a quiet individual. Don't seem to remember too sort of noteworthy post-match interviews with Dennis Bergkamp. But but also he was outshone certainly at the start of the season by Ian Wright, who who broke Arsenal's goal-scoring record. And, and that took a lot of the headlines for, for the first part of the season and before Bergkamp really hit his stride. Uh, did you ever explain how he got the count wrong, Ian Wright? Because he celebrates it a goal early, doesn't he? Yeah, I think it's just enthusiasm, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, he was lucky that he did the... Um... He got the second and the third in the same game, so he could do the T-shirt again. But, yeah, it was a bit of a cock-up. I always like the fact, I mean, this was, it was such a big story. Like, every week, Ian Wright would be asked about when he was going to break the record. And I love the fact that when he finally did, it was probably the absolutely the easiest of the 179, just to tap in from two yards against Bolton. It was a, a funny way to crown it. It's Dennis Bergkamp, save. Yeah, it is. It's here. And Walker's 
fearsome front line for Arsenal uh, that season with Nicolas Elelka. Of course, another of their threats, and they were unbeaten in their opening 12 matches. Come November, though, a run of four defeats in six saw them slip back. That, though, was nothing to what was busy going on across town at Tottenham. Spurs had seen Jerry Francis resign after a run of bad results. The club then assembled mid-November the nation's press to meet his successor. Step forward, Swiss manager Christian Gross, making one of the Premier League's most remarkable debuts ever. Show me my ticket here. This, I think and I hope it will be my ticket of the dream, of my dream. It's an underground ticket from London Heathrow. I took the underground to come here to a hot white lane. Gross there, bewildering the assembled press, talking about hot white lane and waving his tube ticket while Alan Sugar sits speechless with this stunned look of what have I done on his face, like a man who's just bought an Amstrad or something. Gross, who Lord <laughs> Sugar later claimed, was actually David Dean's suggestion. He said that David Dean said, you know, I shouldn't really tell you this, but there's this guy at Grasshoppers, he's won a couple of titles, he might be good. And Lord Sugar went, oh, that's, that's great, and, and signed him up. And, of course, it was Spurs who, who went down the tubes, as I'm sure the joke went at the time. <laughs> yeah, he didn't have a very good start, did he? Um, Christian Gross, third game in charge, I think it was, when Chelsea went there and won 6-1. Kind of difficult to, to recover um, from that. And they, they'd signed David Ginler, amongst others, that summer, hadn't they? And, and, and in comes this um, disciplinarian. Yes, he says. Les Ferdinand too, yeah, and 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 um, we might come on to Newcastle, but but on the day that that Ferdinand signed, Shearer got a serious injury, mm. missed much of the season. But but if you're David Ginler and you're signing for Jerry Francis, you know who who played a relatively attacking style of football, and then in comes this disciplinarian who tells you he doesn't like long hair. David Ginler does not want to hear that. Absolutely not. So Ginler and Ferdinand arriving in the summer, they then in the course of the season bring back Klinsman and. Good time, Charlie. Uh, Nicola Berti from, from Inter. The Premier League at this point, I know it was becoming more of a force, but it still had the slight air of a, of a retirement home. Although Klinsman, now 33, was tremendously successful. Nine goals, including four in a single match. A, a, a 6-2 victory over Wimbledon. Is this four for Klinsman? It might be. It is. A sensational finish. And Spurs have gone mad here at Selhurst. With this array of talent, why were they so far down the table? I mean, they, they ended up, what, four points clear of the drop in 14th? Yeah, I mean, they, he basically suffered from the thing, that the one thing that, that, as Michael will probably go on to say, that Wenger was brilliant at, which was getting the best out of an ageing defence. Tottenham still had that kind of existing back four that had been there for a while. And... Yeah, they they weren't very good at defending in that season. Ginola was not really Gross's type of player. Les Ferdinand was brilliant but relied upon service and they didn't really have that service on the wing. Still had Andy Sinton and players like that. So it still felt a bit old school. I think they... I mean, Gross was obviously the wrong manager, but they also just kind of fell into a... I suspect what happened is they saw Arsene Wenger doing pretty well at, at Arsenal and thought, you know, we want a piece of that and assume by just appointing a, a foreign manager, it would be that simple. And the reality is, is that massively undersold the work that Wenger did outside of match day. Didn't help them losing Teddy Sheringham in the summer either. You know, Ferdinand, we mentioned, didn't get that many goals, but Sheringham was also the Tottenham captain. So that's um, a big, big part of the dressing room to have lost as well. 
Mm. Meantime, Newcastle, who you mentioned, Paul McIntosh says, I'd love to hear more about Dalglish Newcastle. The season the entertainers died, Dad's Army signing up, fans begging the team to attack in the cup final, albeit with some bad luck thrown in, like Shearer getting seriously injured on the day Ferdinand was sold. Yeah, I mean, uh, this to me is one of the, the most remarkable, although incredibly boring, if you're a Newcastle fan seasons. They were, they went from second scoring 73 goals to scoring 35 goals. And I don't know. We'd probably need Duncan Alexander to tell us, but I'd be surprised if there's many teams that have suffered as big a shortfall in goals from one season to another. Milan, when when Van Basten got injured, they went from... I mean, it wasn't that extreme, but it's it's quite similar, the numbers. Yeah, I mean, their, their top scorer got six goals that season, which I know Shearer got injured for half of it, but even he only scored twice in 17 either side of that, that injury. And it was, as you say, Dad's army. So Dalglish sold Ginolo and Ferdinand and bought John Barnes and Ian Rush at very much the end of their careers. Barnes was actually their top scorer with six, which is not great. But yeah, the fans were not impressed. Um, yeah, difficult year for, for Kenny Dalgleish, particularly in, in January of 1998, Newcastle drawn away at Stevenage in the fourth round of the FA Cup, asked for the tie to be switched on the fairly spurious reason that they would need more tickets than the 1400 that Stevenage were offering for their away support. Kenny Dalgleish finds himself on Newsnight being grilled by Jeremy Paxman as to why the club are trying to make this decision. And for some reason, it's Dalgleish who's got to launch a defence. 2,000 or less travel to Everton, isn't that right, in the third round? Well, maybe it was because it was on terrestrial television. Manchester United played you. You only gave them 1,850 tickets. Yeah, because we're 36,000 season ticket holders. I see. In a kind of bemused Dalgleish going, hmm, it's a bit above my pay grade, really, so (laughs) (laughs) it's worth seeking out the clip. All right, as winter set in then, the front runners in the Premier League were soon them again. The team that had won four of the five Premier League seasons so far, Man United, over the previous summer, they'd lost an Eric Cantona and gained at Teddy Sheringham. They'd also lost new skipper Roy Keane in September to a cruciate ligament injury at Leeds. Alf Inge Harland berating him post-foul, accusing him of feigning injury, which proved to be a very ill-advised decision indeed. Anyway, come December, despite having their own unbeaten run ended by Darren Huckabee and Coventry. Maybe Coventry can still win it. Here's Huckabee. The end of the year saw United five points clear. The team in second were Blackburn Rovers. Then in third were Rude Hullett's Chelsea. Liverpool, where 18-year-old Michael Owen was on his way to winning a share of the Golden Boot, were fourth. Leeds were fifth. And then Arsenal, all the way down in sixth, 12 points behind. Can we have a quick word on the breakthrough season of Michael Owen? Michael. Yeah, he was sensationally good. I remember on the opening day, he scored a penalty at Wimbledon. And uh, I was remember listening to it on the radio and thinking, wow, this is big responsibility for a kid that young. But yeah, he went on to have, I mean, one of his best seasons, really. I mean, this season and, and 2000 and 2000, 2001, he was just sensational. And it was just the range of his finishes that was so good. Um, it wasn't just going in behind and finishing one-on-one, as people remember. But, you know, quite spectacular finishes from tight angles. The one thing that I think people forget about Michael Owen during this period, there was like quite a big talking point at the time, was uh, his level of aggression. I mean, he got a red card at um, Old Trafford 
for quite a bad tackle on maybe Ron Johnson. And he'd also got sent off in an under-21 under game for, I think, punching someone or headbutting someone or something. And it was a real kind of like almost a Wayne Rooney-esque vibe with him. Like, you know, he really has to control his temperament or he won't make it, you know, won't develop into the player he, he you know, could be with his level of ability. And that was very much at odds with the image that was portrayed of him in, in the media and it's quite interesting to to listen to interviews with Owen now, who seems really uncomfortable with that kind of PR image of him. And, you know, by all accounts, I think was as much of a, a tear away as, uh, you know, your Carragher's or your Rooney's at that point. Michael Owen, wild man. Second place, I mentioned there, were Blackburn Rovers, which was surprising, really, given the confusion there. Svenja and Eriksson had had ditched them after agreeing to take over and it's and, and made his own suggestion there, which worked out better than David Dean's, of Roy Hodgson, who came in and led them to sixth place in qualification for the UEFA Cup, the beginning of a long and, and storied Premier League career for Roy Hodgson. I mean, the interesting thing there is that Hodgson was basically Ericsson's idol when he was growing up. I mean, Hodgson had gone to Sweden and famously revolutionised the coaching methods and brought in the 4-4-2 with his own defence and... Yeah, I mean, Ericsson's just absolutely in awe of him in, in the early 70s, I think. So, yeah, 25 years later, he's like, well, if you want in my coaching methods, you might as well go for the real thing. That makes sense. And what, 22 years later, Roy Hodgson's still a Premier League manager. He's had, by my count, since Blackburn, 10 different club jobs and two national teams since then. Pretty impressive. Now, the new year in the Premier League brought some changes. First, pull it out at Chelsea. While Spurs were having problems with Gross, for Rude, it was Neto that was the issue. At least that's what the club claimed. It was all a dispute over his salary. He said, though, the real story was another one. Matt, what do they now say at Chelsea? Uh, if Well, I mean, not much because it's a completely different hierarchy and this was part of the thing here. You had the, the personalities of, of Ken Bates and Rude Hullet, which were always likely to to clash at, at some stage. I mean, Chelsea was second in, in the table when, when Hullet was sacked and, and well-placed in, in two competitions that they went on to win both of. Um, I think it, it's worked out, or it did work out a lot better for Chelsea than it did for, for Hullet because this was by far the high watermark of his managerial career. You know, he managed Chelsea for nearly twice as many games as he did anybody else. And, and I'm sure we'll get on to in a couple of weeks what happened to him at Newcastle, which was not particularly good. But after that, you know, you're looking at clubs like LA Galaxy and, and Tarek Grozny. So Chelsea finished the season with two trophies under Fine. under Vialli. It's um, in, in hindsight, it was the right decision. Gianluca Vialli stepping up from the playing staff as a player manager and leading them to glory. And that was a, a model emulated uh, further south in the capital by Crystal Palace. A few weeks in March after the sacking of Steve Coppel, they went, Attilio Lombardo, you're foreign, you can manage. And up he stepped <laughs> at the age of 32 years and 67 days, becoming and remaining to this day the youngest manager in Premier League history. He also had Thomas Brolin as his assistant and translator. Brolin also, of course, foreign and thus well-versed in tactics and that. I have to say that, as I kind of hinted before, not, not a season that did wonders for the Premier League's hopes of being taken seriously abroad. I remember in Italy people marvelling at this fact that Attilio Lombardo had gone to Crystal Palace and now they basically handed him the, the, you know, the keys to the club and he'd gone, well, yeah, all right, I'll, I'll do my best. Premier League, though, got its revenge a few years later when David Platt had his seven-week stint in, <laughs> in charge of Sampdoria. So, you know, it all comes around, doesn't it? 
Yeah, it was um, it was an extraordinary season for Crystal Palace. I mean, even in recent years, they've had a peculiar kind of situation where they always seem to be slightly better away from home than they are at home. Um, I think because they've got so many good counter-attacking players, but they really took it to the extreme back in 97-98 because they didn't win a single home game until April the 18th when they beat Derby, which is extraordinary. They'd won six away games up to that point, including, quite bizarrely, at their own stadium because they beat Wimbledon away. Uh, so they could win at Selhurst Park, just not when they were the officially designated home team. Very, very strange season. It is by far the, I think they got 33% of their points at home, which is the least by absolutely miles in the Premier League era. I think the next least is about 40, 41%. So yeah, it was a, a very strange campaign for them. That sounds like one of those things where if Barry Fry had been in charge, he'd have kind of blindfolded or kidnapped the squad and told them it was a told them it was an away game. I'm Jose Mourinho. I know a thing or two about being special. Being on the front cover of Rolling Stone magazine, special. Winning the daily jackpot on Paddy Power Games, not special. Understood, Jose. Yes, someone wins an average £40,000 jackpot every single day. So if you win, don't think you're special. Daily Jackpots by Paddy Power Games. Jackpots must be awarded by 11pm and vary from day to day. Jackpot is shared with other operators. Available on selected games. T's and C's at paddypower.com. 18 plus You're listening to The Totally Verbal Show with James Richardson. Back to the battle at the top. By March, Man United were 11 points clear, 12 points of Arsenal, and the bookies <laughs> were already paying out. But then, United's form faded. What, what was behind this? Was it not enough broccoli? What, what, were the, what were the reasons that a team managed by Sir Alex Ferguson bottled it so spectacularly? They just stopped scoring goals. I mean, we, we spoke, I think, last week about Andy Cole's maybe slightly unfair reputation about being a man who needs five chances to score. But he scored 15 that season in 33. But he, I, I remember him missing so many chances. Manchester United scored 31 goals in eight games between October sometime and December sometime. That's more than they scored in the rest of the season. So the, their goal scoring just absolutely fell off the cliff. I think they scored seven goals in nine games after going on a, a remarkable run where they scored sort of seven and six and five and four. So yeah, they they just stopped scoring goals. And and Arsenal, to their credit, kind of spotted the wobble really quickly and and absolutely capitalised on it. Key game was Arsenal's visit to Old Trafford at the time. The Gunners arriving nine points behind United, but with three games in hand due to the lights going out at Wimbledon and an FA Cup run, uh, which featured loads of games going to replays. This a game decided by Mark Overmars with the very first Premier League goal Arsenal had ever scored away to United. And here comes Overmars. Now Arsenal have scored in the Premiership and Old Trafford and Mark Overmars, the main threat, has finally delivered. Yeah, I think this is up there with the most impressive individual performances of the Premier League era. I mean, this was a proper title decider. Arsenal outsiders at that point, but... You know, with a win away at Old Trafford, where, like you say, they hadn't scored in six, seven years or something, would take them top. And and the game is just all about Overmars. I mean, I think Burkamp was was only half fit. Chris Ray played up front alongside him, and it's just Overmars completely dominating the game. United had a young lad called John Curtis, who was a very promising right back. I think only making his second or third Premier League start, 
And Overmars just tears him apart to such an extent that Curtis's career never really recovers. Um, and the thing about this performance that I only really appreciated maybe two or three years ago was I didn't realise that Overmars's celebration for that goal is uh, a piss take of the Cantona celebration, isn't it? When he does that chip against Sunder. I genuinely just thought he was really shocked to have scored well, yeah. for like 10 or 15 years. Because Cantona looks imperious, whereas... Uh... <laughs> Overmars just looks like a man who can't find his platform, basically. Yeah, it was. I mean, Overmars, I think, is is almost slightly overlooked in terms of the great Premier League players and the great Arsenal players. I think partly because Wenger did so well to replace him, as, as Wenger always did at this point. Um, I mean, they sold him to Barcelona for £25 million and I think got Robert Pires in for seven. And, and Pires was probably a slightly better player. But yeah, I mean, during the run-in when, when Burkamp was out injured, Ian Wright played almost no part in this run-in whatsoever. And it was Overmars who really led the, the goal scoring. And um, and also was very good in the FA Cup. It's called the opener uh, in the FA Cup final as well. Uh, the Overmars celebration is not the one that I remember from this game, though. It's um, full-time. The, the Arsenal supporter, Barry Fest, his name was. Kind of kind of wiry bloke with curly hair in his, I don't know, 30s to 40s, just screaming wide-eyed at the camera. Uh, later, the Guardian caught up with him and, and he kind of explained that, you know, this being 1998, there's no Twitter or anything. He gets home, watches Match of the Day. He's had a few calls from friends saying, hey, we saw you on the telly. Uh, thought that the celebration that he did was after the Overmars goal is disappointed when it's not included in the edit. Then sees that it is and, you know, subsequently starts signing autographs and, and, and not buying drinks in, in, in his local pub. Um, and was quoted as saying, I hope we do win the league now or I'll look a right prick. <laughs> <laughs> that celebration to me is... I've basically merged it in my mind with Fever Pitch. It feels so out of Fever Pitch or out, you know, the movie Fever Pitch that it feels exactly the same. He looked like quite a lot like Ray Parler, didn't he? A cross between Ray Parler and Colin Firth, who plays Nick mm. Hornby in Fever Pitch. I actually read Fever Pitch recently for the first time ever. I'm probably the last football fan in the world to read Fever Pitch. And I thought <laughs> I was going to not like it, but I actually thought it was a really good read. Well, there you go. Nick Hornby's Fever Pitch. That victory left Arsenal six points behind United, but they still had those three games in hand and there was no way they were letting this go. They put together a 10 consecutive victory sequence that came to its climax with a 4-0 win over Everton that handed them their first Premier League title. Tony Adams putting the seal on the win with the force of the goals. Now Bowles. And it's Tony Adams put through by Steve Bowles. Would you believe it? That result left the Toffees set to go down for the first time since the 50s. They were a point behind Bolton, needing results to go their way on the final day. We'll touch on that shortly. But Arsene Wenger becoming the first of these foreign managers to actually win the English top division and Michael doing the double. Yeah, they did. And, and for all the big names, we talk about Burkamp and Overmars. I think this was a really a real squad effort. I mean, I mentioned Chris Ray briefly. I don't recall hearing the name Christopher Ray either before or after this campaign. I, I, I think he ended up playing for like Bishop Stortford in the Isthmian Premier League only about three or four years afterwards. But he scored some absolutely crucial goals. There was a winner at Bolton, um, a winner at uh, Wimbledon, a winner in the FA Cup semi-final against uh, Wolves. And at the back as well, there was a period where Arsenal were without uh, David Seaman for six or seven games and Alex Manninger came in and, and particularly in that United game, made some absolutely extraordinary saves. And I think I'm right in saying that he was the first player, maybe not the first player, but a rare player who 
uh, got a Premier League medal despite not playing 10 games because he'd just been such an outstanding player. Um, so yeah, it was there was lots of players who popped up with crucial goals at different times. I remember Gilles Grimondi scoring uh, against Palace, I think a winner, and and Arsenal had a run during the the uh, the spring of just constant one nils. Um, I don't think they'd quite evolved yet into the the possession based attractive side that we think of. You know, from the Wenger era, they were renowned for being very physical. They got a lot of uh, red cards. That was always in the in the news. The, the tossing up how many dismissals they've got. And I know a few uh, opposition players, certainly Gary Neville, has said that actually he thinks was, this was the best iteration of, of Wenger's Arsenal because they had the technical quality, but they were also, you know, pretty strong and, and basically willing to get stuck in, in in midfield, which maybe the later sides weren't. You're telling us we're boring. We'll just keep on scoring as the club's <laughs> memorable <laughs> FA Cup song, Hot Stuff, had it. Very lusty singing performance in the in the video from Ian right there of course that uh, cashing in on the success that year of the full Monty the popular male stripper motion picture and that film featured an Arsenal reference didn't it so it was it worked quite well that way what was that uh, one of the the dance moves is where they basically walk forward and put their arms in the air and one of the characters jokes that it's basically like the Arsenal offside trap <laughs> brilliant I think we should give some praise to Tony Adams um, for 97-98. Like Michael says, I didn't realise that Gary Neville said this, but this is my favourite Arsenal team as a, as a non-Arsenal supporter. And that season from Adams coming, you know, not that long after his very public admissions or his high-profile relationship with alcohol, to being part of, and the one of the key parts of a, a title-winning team under a very modern a kind of a progressive manager in terms of things like nutrition, which clearly didn't really suit that image of, of the old Arsenal drinking culture. It's pretty remarkable. And then, and that goal against Everton, that to me is probably my favourite Premier League moment, probably because I was 12 or 13 years old when it happened. But I love that moment. I love that it's so fitting and that Adams gets to just put his arms in the air and have that adoration and that moment. Because central defenders don't usually get those moments. They normally, you know, it's normally left to the strikers. So for Adams to have that was pretty exceptional, I think. Yeah, I think it's a great shout. And it's also worth pointing out that there was a game just before Christmas where Arsenal lost 3-1 at home to Blackburn. And Adams had a bit of a shocker and I think was having some ankle problem or knee problem. And, And Wenger basically just said you know, take five or six weeks off, go to this rehab place in, I think, the south of France and get it sorted. And that doesn't seem that interesting today. But at the time, it was like, well, if you're the Arsenal captain, you play on through the pain and you just get to the end of the campaign. And I think that was a kind of microcosm of what Wenger was all about. He was just a few years ahead of his time compared to, you know, everyone else in English football. I think that's that, that was kind of a two-way thing. That One of the reasons that I like this Arsenal team so much was was that blend of, of Wenger and, you know, Overmars, Bergkamp, Vieira with a spine of, of Seaman and Tony Adams and Ray Parler and Ian Wright. And, and the fact not only that Wenger was, was willing to incorporate them and integrate them into what was his plan, would have been difficult to get rid of them all at the same time, but, but he kept a lot of them for, for a reasonable amount of time, but also their willingness to adapt to his methods you know it's not like he came in having won the Champions League and having won league titles in France and Germany and Italy he came from as Alex Ferguson said Japan um, and they all bought into what he was saying and and it worked out in, in their benefit hugely
final day came around with Palace and Barnsley already down. I know you want to talk about Barnsley, Matt. We will. But next in line for the drop were Everton. Everton, who'd offered Andy Gray the job of manager the previous summer, apparently, and who had, as the season wore on, welcomed Howard Kendall back to their bench, were poised for the first relegation since 1954. There they were, one point behind Bolton and safety. Everton took the lead, but Coventry came back and made it 1-1. However, to the relief of Howard Kendall and the Goodison Park faithful, Chelsea came through for them, beating Bolton 2-0, booed, Matt, by their own fans, to the amazement of Sky's commentator, who calls it unprecedented, despite the fact that three seasons before, Liverpool had done exactly the same thing to their team when they were playing Blackburn Rovers, more or less... Yeah, it's quite incredible to watch, to watch the footage of it because a, a point for Bolton, because Everton drew with Coventry, a point for Bolton would have kept them up. So it's 1-0 late on. Bolton are on, are on the attack and, and Chelsea pinch possession back and, and start a counter, which ends in a goal for, for Jody Morris. But even as even as Chelsea get to sort of halfway and it's clear that they've got far more players attacking than, than Bolton have defending, the, the crowd are booing and there's hardly any celebration when the goal goes in and it's... Um, it's a very, very strange thing to watch, but quite sweet, I'd like to think. Maybe not for the Chelsea players, but but certainly for Bolton supporters. That's all over, Martin. That's the great escape for Everton. They start by the skin of their teeth. A word for Howard Kendall as well, because I'm really glad that Everton stayed up that season. It's pretty common knowledge that Kendall had his own issues with alcohol at the time and would go on to continue to have. And this was his last moment in English football. He was he re- resigns um, or leaves Everton that summer. He, he manages in Greece for a few months, but other than that, this is it. And I'm really glad for him, given the history he has at Everton. This is, a, I think I'm saying right in saying the third time he's back there. Um, and having done all he did in the 80s there, it's really nice that he doesn't have that, what Matt and I know as Brian Clough's final moment at Forest, which is relegation. It's, it's mm. really nice that Kendall avoids that. Martin Boyd writes in to say, I was on the pitch at the final whistle at Goodison Park. Almost all of us went home soaking wet and with a bit of the pitch, which I planted in my parents' garden. So that's nice. All right, we can't leave 97-98 without Matt hearing about Barnsley and their first and only campaign in English top flight football. Yeah, I mean, I got a kick out of Neil Redfern at the time. Um, I think we all did. But but really, the, the Barnsley thing that I wanted to talk about was the, the game against Liverpool. And actually, both their games against Liverpool were, in different ways, sort of the highlights of their season. One good, one bad. They, they won at Anfield, uh, 1-0, which was undoubtedly the best result they got all season. But, but the home defeat in March, they lost 3-2. Barnsley had three players sent off in the game. Referee by the name of Gary Willard sends off two Barnsley players. Six or seven supporters rush from the stands to try to get at him. Jan Agafiortov tackles them, brings them to the ground. Willard is so shaken up that without telling the players, uh, either manager Danny Wilson or Roy Evans, or his assistant referees as we now know them, linesmen back then, he just wanders off into the changing room and stays there for three minutes while he regains his composure Comes back out, sends off another Barnsley player. Liverpool win 3-2. End of the game. First first time I'd ever heard of Gary Willard looking that up. Uh, oddly, I don't think he refereed that many Premier League games thereafter. <laughs> it's just like watching Brazil. That was the Barnsley song. Mm. But the yeah, we... yeah, 2014 World Cup Brazil rather than 1970. <laughs> <laughs> we can't leave Barnsley's season without the infamous quote from George Haristoff. 
who was a striker that came in uh, for one and a half million from Partizan Belgrade and said he was finding it difficult to settle in because it was impossible to get a girlfriend because the women were too ugly and drank too much beer. And all credit to the BBC, who, in response to the story, went out and found... Uh, a student from Barnsley, Michelle Dodson, who said, my reaction to his remarks is unprintable. He wants to look in the mirror before talking about us. Let's face it, we've all seen him and he's no oil painting himself, which is a lovely retort. So having problems scoring on all fronts, Barnsley and their players. One last tweet here from Chris Pryor, who points out that quite the juxtaposition this, while that Premier League season was going on, Manchester City, where were they? They were getting relegated to the old third division, going through five managers and featured no less than 38 players, including one who would score a Champions League hat-trick the following season. Who was that, mm. Daniel? <laughs> I'm not claiming this is immediate knowledge, but it's Uwe Rosler, who then moved to Kaiserslautern and scored a hat-trick against HJK Helsinki. Good Lord. Season. Remarkable stuff. But crikey, you know, when you look at how things have changed, Manchester City, eh? Mm. Anyway... Magnificent stuff. That was 97-98. Time to finish off today's show, though, with a trip to the more recent past, earlier this morning, when we did the second round of Alvaro and Daniel's Intertotally semi-final. Welcome back, Alvaro and Daniel. How are you guys doing? Hello. Very good. Hello. All right. Thank you. Situation is Daniel leads by four points, but has a mighty advantage in the away answers, has more away answers than Alvaro. So, Alvaro, you need to win 5-0, effectively, in the general knowledge. Uh, should we just get this over with, then? Let's get on with it. Come on. All right. Here's your first question, Alvaro. Who is the next player in this sequence? Eden Hazard, Riyad Mahrez, N'Golo Kante, Mo Salah, and... Mm. This sequence... Yes. Hazard, Mares, Kante, Salah, and then who? Mm. Raheem Sterling? It's not. It's Virgil van Dijk. Oh, they yeah. are the last five PFA players of the year. Yeah. And that wrong answer, Alvaro, means that you can't go through to the final. I mean, congratulations on making it this far anyway. Can I run through the rest of your general knowledge questions? Yes, of course. Argentina won it in 92. Denmark won it in 95, Brazil won it in 97, and Mexico won it in 1999. What was it? The Confederations Cup. Correct. Question three. This could be the most dramatic story of the season. It's Torres to get a place in the Champions League final. The headline has been written. That was the sound of Fernando Torres scoring that iconic goal in Chelsea's win over Barcelona in the 2012 Champions League semi-final. But who scored the other goal for Chelsea in that game? I know he got, he got sent off, but I think that he played well. Ramirez? It was Ramirez. Question four, then. What event was next scheduled to take place at the Stadion Energa Gdansk? What event was next scheduled to take place at the Stadion Energa Gdansk? Euro 2020. The Europa League final. Mm. And question five. At which club is Juan Sebastian Verón chairman? Tricky one, this. Yes, and I should know. Verón. Estudiantes. Is not Veron answer, it's the right one. That's absolutely correct. So you got three out of five, mm. Alvaro. 
only two short of what you needed to make it interesting for Daniel's general knowledge. Daniel, can we go through your questions anyway? Please do. All right. Question one. Who is the next player in this sequence? Cafu, Fabio Cannavaro, Ika Casillas, Philip Lahm and... Cafu came first, then Cannavaro, then Ika Casillas. Yeah. Uh, it's Hugo Lloris. It is Hugo Lloris. Question two. Manchester United won it in 1991. Chelsea won it in 1998. And Liverpool won it in 2001 and 2005. What was it? Uh, the... 1991. So Man United won it in 91. Chelsea in 98. Liverpool twice in 2001 and 2005. What is it? Um, hmm. Shall I tell you? I was going to guess the Charity Shield, but it isn't that. It's the European Super Cup, so you're not that far uh, off. Question three. David Beckham scored the iconic goal for England against Greece in 2001. But who scored the other goal for England in that game? Teddy Sheringham. Correct. Question four. What event was next scheduled to take place at the Lusile Iconic Stadium? Lusile Iconic. Uh, hmm, it's not the Champions League. It's not the Europa Cup. So it must be the... Um, go on then. <laughs> Have a go. Uh, why don't I know that? I mean, I'll guess the Super Cup again, but I don't think it is. No, it's not. And to be fair, this is really fiendish stuff from Question Master Nick Miller. It's the 2022 World Cup final. Oh, so it is still scheduled. Of course. Yeah. I mean, it was, but OK. Question five. At which club did Sergio Aguero start his career? Uh, that... Ooh. Oh, where's it going to go back? Uh, where's it going to go back to? Oh, it, Independiente. Very good, Daniel. That is correct. It was Independiente, giving you a score of three out of five in the general knowledge. A grand total of six out of ten in your semi-final second leg. And, of course, you're through to the final. How do you feel, Daniel? Yeah, good. Thank you very much. Decided which Leicester-based artiste you're going to be making a cash-in cup final single with? Uh, I mean, it has to be Kasabian if it's Leicester, which is not my choice. I don't know. I looked up. You've got um, Corner Shop, Mark Morrison. Oh. Mark Morrison would be interesting. Yeah. Also, Shawaddy Waddy. I don't know if you remember them. I do. Uh, Mark Morrison is a slightly dubious character, so I'll go for... um, Brimful of Asher, Heroes Corner Shop. Brilliant. Well, that would be amazing. Alvaro, congratulations as well to you. Reaching a semi-final against some of the strongest competition in the business. And, of course, there's still the chance of bronze for you in the third, fourth playoff. Ah, do we have the third or fourth playoff? No, I, I, I was, <laughs> actually, it was just a, it was a cruel joke. But, <laughs> okay. but sincerely, congratulations for, for making it to the semi-final and pushing Story Hard. Will you be rooting for him in the final against whoever that might be? I think so, yeah. I think so. There is a little bit of honour of on, on losing to the, to the winner. And I think Daniel has been really good so far. So, yes, I'm going for him. All right. Well, his opponent will either be Jack Lang or Michael Cox. And we'll be finding out which of those two makes it in our next set of semi-finals. For now, many thanks to you both. And Daniel, I'll speak to you in a second. Thank you. Thank you. And that's how it happened. How are you feeling now, Daniel? Uh, relieved. Hours later, yes. Right. And of course, 
relieved, but also having heard Michael Cox just breeze through your general knowledge questions, a little bit concerned, I imagine, that you might be meeting him in the big one. It doesn't come as much surprise, but yes. He has got to win his semi-final first, it should be said. but Right. Yes. And you can bet that Jack Lang will be pulling every trick in the book <laughs> to make sure that doesn't happen. <laughs> that all gets underway on Thursday in the Totally Football Show when we'll be looking back at Champions League action, the 2001-2002 season, the Hamden final, of course, the Zidane final, if you will. And we'll also be throwing forward with Raphael Honigstein and our other guests to next weekend's Bundesliga action. And there'll be other fun as well. Uh, so I do hope you join us for that. For now, it's many thanks to Michael, to Matt and to Daniel for joining us today. And you, listener, from all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. Keep up to date with everything across our Totally Football network at The Totally Show on Twitter. And make sure you check out our brand new website too, thetotallyfootballshow.com. Muddy Knees Media.